would you turn to the book of Revelation? As you see from the screen, we're doing drive-by Revelation today. What does that mean? That means that we're going to go through the book of Revelation really quick, parts of it, just so that you can see and understand a little bit of where I believe that John is taking us. In the book of John, we do not have, the gospel of John, we have, do not have, out of the four gospels, the Olivet Discourse, which we've been in for the last three months. We don't have it there. I've told you in these previous months that I believe that the Olivet Discourse that Jesus was speaking of happened in that generation. It says in verse 34, this generation will not pass away until all these things happen. So we have to keep in mind, if we're going to look at time indicators, then we must notice and must understand that the things that happened... The falling of the stars, the falling of the, uh, of, of, uh, the darkening of the moon, the sun being darkened, those kind of things, spoke about the powers that were transferred as it mentions it in Isaiah. That whenever there was kingdoms and those kind of things, they used those celestial bodies to refer to that these kingdoms were overthrown. And so therefore, Matthew 24 the Olivet Discourse, Mark 13, Luke 21, spoke of something that happened in the first century, and I believe those things have already been fulfilled. And I believe that in the Gospel of John, the reason it is not mentioned, the reason that Olivet Discourse is not mentioned is because he talks about it in the book of Revelation. Now, folks, you know, and I've told you, and so just bear with me, let you see where I'm coming from because I am challenging you and most of you in your beliefs concerning the book of Revelation that you believe it's in our future. I don't believe so. I don't. And I'm going to show you some things today just to let you know why and then let you make your own decision. I'm not trying to tell you that you need to think like I think, but I do want you to study it. I do want you to read it. I do want you to see what other folks have said about the book of Revelation because up until 1830, as I've told you before, as far as dispensationalism is concerned, it never had existed nor had this teaching ever existed uh, before that. You cannot find sermons, you cannot find commentaries, you can't find folks that are speaking what they started speaking concerning the book of Revelation and all these other kind of things um, about airplanes and bombs and, and uh, locusts being, you know, helicopters and all this other kind of stuff. You don't find any of that prior to 1830. So what we want to do today is that we're going to look at the first chapter of Revelation, and I'm going to jump some spaces, and I'm going to show you some things in Revelation where I believe that they correspond with Matthew 24 and what Jesus was speaking of today. So we're going to fly through this because I've got about a hundred slides to show you today. So let's get on with that. And I'm teasing you. I'm not doing that. So what is the key 
to understanding Revelation. There's two keys that we need to understand. You must understand when these prophecies transpire. And you must understand John's method regarding how his prophecies should be interpreted. And we have clues given to us in the very first chapter. So read along with me. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must, what? Soon take place. Soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written for the time is near. Now, notice what it says. Must happen soon. And in fact, Matthew 24, again, we go back to that and Jesus says, when you see these things, when you see this, when these things happen and you experience this, John is saying this to those whom he's writing to, which is the seven churches. Verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Those were literal churches, churches that he ministered to, churches that he is writing to. And they are hearing this, and they are seeing it, and he's saying these things soon, soon must take place. So the big question is, when is that? Well, the little Greek words give us information. Shortly, it says, you're going to see this shortly, is a Greek word in takai, which means a rate that is rapid, that is very swiftly. And the word near means close proximity. So, John expects the prophesied events to take place soon. Temporal proximity is what it means in the Greek. So John expects his readers to understand and to act. The time is near. Why would he do that? Because the time was near. If he meant 2,000 years ago, why would he even ask them to act and to understand? So we need to look at it and understand that this is something that is happening soon. In fact, in the opening and the closing of Revelation, compare it side by side. It says the revelation of Jesus Christ gave to show his bondservants servants things that must take place shortly. Look at the end of the verses there. It says, he said to me, these words are faithful and true and the Lord... God, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angels to show his bondservants the things that must shortly take place. And then in verse 10, for the time is what? Is near. So at the beginning and at the end of the book of Revelation, he said the time is near. And you need to understand that. Now, are there any other indicators that judgment was near? Absolutely. In the letter of the church of Philadelphia, John writes, he says... Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep who? You. Who's you? The church at Philadelphia. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Now again, just like in Matthew 24, that little Greek word for world is a word called gi. It means the land. It says this trial is coming upon the land. It's going to happen there. So he's coming soon. 
Hold fast to what you have. Who's he speaking to? To the church of Philadelphia in the first century. So we ask this question. Why would Christ promise to keep a first century church from an hour of testing if that testing was not to occur for 2,000 years? Why would he do that? Why would John ask his readers to heed these things if these things will not happen for 2,000 years or more? That would be senseless. Why did he do it? Because he's speaking about the things that were going to happen soon. And even John says this. Here's an indicator. He indicates that he's writing to those who would be persecuted shortly and that even as he writes, he is being persecuted. Listen, look at what it says. Look at verse, I believe it's verse 9. There, it says, I, John, your brother and partner in, in the what? In the tribulation. Remember back in Matthew 24, Jesus said the great tribulation was going to happen in Matthew 24 to that century. And so John is saying, I, John, your brother and partner in that tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island of Pat, called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. <clears throat> so what is John doing? John is writing to a persecuted minority. God is concerned with their plight, gives them a time period as when these are going to take place. And when is that going to take place? Soon. He would not tell them he is concerned with their persecution and then say, oh, you know what? I'm going to allow this to pay, take place in the future. That's kind of ridiculous, do you not think? That's kind of like this. It's kind of like, say, Philip and I are walking down or driving down the road. It's a cold winter day, and we look outside, and there's someone shivering with short sleeves on like a T-shirt, and they have no coat, and we stop, and we look at him. We get out of the car. We go up to talk to him and say, it looks like you have no coat. I, too, at one time had no coat. And he goes, yes, I have no coat. Well, I tell you what we'll do, sir. We're going to go to town, and we'll get you a coat soon. And then I hit Philip and go, <laughs> and really in about five years, and we drive off. Is that any concern for that guy at that moment, at that time? Not at all. In other words, if I'm saying we're going to go to town to get you a coat and we're going to get it for you soon, it doesn't mean I'm going to do it in five years. When am I going to do it? Then God is trying to express concern through John. He's saying, I'm a partaker in the tribulation. I am with you in all this kind of stuff. Therefore, these things are going to be happening soon. Understand they're going to be happening soon. Prepare for them because we're concerned about you. And he's not going to put that off for 2,000 years. He's not going to do that. That would be merciless on the part of God to do something like that. So we look at Revelation. We begin to start thinking this happened in the first century. It must apply to the first century. So we look and see this is when. But now we want to look and see what is the method that John uses about revealing his vision. Go back to chapter 1 there again and then listen to what verse 1 says the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show 
his servants the things that must soon take place. That little word in the Greek for show means to signify. Robert Mounts, who is a professor of Greek, has written several Greek courses that are used in seminaries today. He says the Greek verb carries the idea of a figurative representation. That gives us a clue. What is revelation? It's using figures. It's using symbols. It's using metaphors. These are things that he's saying. I'm going to show you those things that will signify what I am talking about. And when we have to, we need to understand this. John's method is to present this literature in a non-literal way. Why do I say that? Because you will hear it said that anyone that has a belief like mine or some other belief other than dispensationalists is that we are very liberal because we're not taking things literally. Well, neither are they. How in the world from locusts, as you see locusts coming up from a bottomless pit that you see in the writing of late great planet Earth and Hal Lindsey, he says those are symbols of helicopters. Is that literal? No, it's not. And so what we're accused of, they're not doing it either. So when John writes, he is writing from a non-literal position. He's saying this is what needs to be done. It has to be uh, not taken literally, okay? It's symbolic language that represents reality or something to soon be realized. And then he gives us some interpretive clues. For example, in verse 12, it says this, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now let's take that literally, okay? I turned and see, and I saw a bunch of candles in heaven. Seven golden lampstands. So we then assume... What's in heaven when we get there? A bunch of candles, you know, a thousand points of light, right? They're all right there, shining in heaven. No, he gives us an interpretive clue later on. What does he say? Okay, in verse 20, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden uh, lampstands, the seven stars are the angels, of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Not candles, they're churches. So he does this for us all throughout the book of Revelation. So now when we get to Revelation, we begin to read into Revelation, we need to understand there is a theme. The theme is this. If John is writing about the things that are going to happen before and during the destruction of AD 70, then Revelation is a judgment upon Israel ending with the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So I want you to look at the prominent characters. There's two women that are prominent characters in the book of Revelation. One is a harlot, one is a bride. We understand when we look through the scripture, the harlot is described as disobedient Israel. 
Go back to the Old Testament and read it. Look at Jeremiah, look at Isaiah, look at Ezekiel, look at Amos. They are all saying, you have played the harlot. Who's he talking about? Jerusalem. When we get into 17, 18, 19, we begin to see in Revelation, we begin to see that he says, this is the harlot, the place where Jesus was crucified. He's talking about Israel, them moving away from Jesus Christ, not accepting Jesus Christ. So we have two women, a harlot and a bride. Who is the bride? We are. We are the church. It's an old covenant being done away with and a new covenant coming. A new heaven and a new earth. What is that? Symbolically, a new heaven and a new earth. That's us. The church. That's us. So, other characters you're going to read in the book of Revelation. I told you this is going to be a drive-by. We're going to quick. We've got horsemen. We've got the beast, we've got a dragon, we've got witnesses, uh, we have uh, angels, we have elders, we have the lamb, we have all kinds of things going on in the book of Revelation. Understand something, folks, it's written symbolically when we're doing these kind of things. He's doing this constantly. Now, are there other in indicators that this is about, Revelation is about the destruction of Jer Jerusalem? Look at verse 7. What does verse 7 say? It says, in the scriptures, it says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will well on account of him. Again, that word earth is that little Greek word gi, which means land. The tribes of the land will well on account of him. Every eye will see him, even those who have pierced him. Is there any kind of words that match this throughout the scripture. There are. Listen to Isaiah 19. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. This is what he's saying in that passage in the context. I am about to send judgment. What was it described as? It was described as the Lord riding on a swift cloud. So we see it again when Jesus says this to the high priest in Matthew 26. But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Who's he speaking to? The high priest. And what does he tell the high priest? You will see the judgment of God. And what does he use? He uses a metaphor, clouds coming on the clouds. And even in Matthew 24, we looked at this, if you compare it. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Now compare that with Revelation 1-7. What does it say? Behold, he's coming. Where? With the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will do what? Mourn. What did Jesus say? Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And then John says, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Same thing in Matthew 24 
and in Revelation. That's why I believe that this is a first century application. This is John's Olivet Discourse that he's putting there. Now, let's look at comparison. I want you to go over to chapter 6 in Revelation. Look at Roman, uh, Revelation chapter 6. We're going to move now, and we're going to see. look about the seven seals. By the way, let me just throw this out to you just to get you to chew on this and to think about this. When you see in chapter 4 there is a throne in heaven, what were thrones used for? people in authority and reigning. But also there was a great white throne of judgment that wherever we see a throne, we usually find that there is a place of judgment. When chapter 4, when John is describing there's a door standing open in heaven and there is God there and there are the 24 elders, these people coming around him and then saying this is what this is and they're crying out holy, holy, holy. They're doing these kind of things. And then you see the scrolls and the lamb and we sing the song, Who is Worthy to Take the Scroll? Folks, I believe that what they're describing is God's judgment now with the 24 elders standing there they are giving witness to this thing and they're walking up Jesus is walking up and he is able to take the scroll and open it up I believe that what he's describing is his divorce certificate for Israel because it says the kingdom is going to be taken from you in Matthew 24 and given to another so he comes and he says, here it is in very symbolic language. Here is the divorce decree that I'm giving to Israel. She has played the harlot. And therefore, he breaks the seal and opens the scroll and he proclaims that the kingdom has been taken from you. Everything that I had promised you, no more. It's done away with. It's going to be given to somebody else. And he takes, at the end of Revelation, he takes a new bride. Us. That's basically what we're looking at and we understand when we get here. But in Revelation, I want you to look at Revelation chapter 6. We're going to compare some things just real quickly about this. So, Revelation chapter 6 in verse 1 says, Now I watched... When the lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say, with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. I believe what John is describing was the very thing that Jesus described of what was going to happen in Matthew 24. He's got a bow, right? That means he's coming as a warrior. He is coming to declare war on those who had rebelled against him. And he uses Rome in order to do that. And what did he say in Matthew 24? You will hear of wars and rumors of wars See that you are not alarmed, for this, this must take place. So what is he describing? War. And it's led by the warrior, Jesus Christ. Now, some of us need to understand this, that we have a Savior, yes, who's meek and mild. But we also have a Savior who is a warrior, who says he will come conquering and he will conquer. And that's exactly what he did. So now if we're going to compare the second seal. 
This is what he says. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that the people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. What's it say in Matthew 24, 7? For nation will rise against what? Nation. Kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. In other words, that seal's broken. It's permitted to take peace so that people should slay one another. Kingdoms, nations slaying one another. This basically indicates there is international strife. But we keep going to the third seal. When he opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Here's a black guy on a black horse. He's holding scales because he is measuring out these things for a denarius. A whole day's wage, a denarius, would only buy a little quart of wheat. Why? Because they're experiencing famine. They're experiencing shortages. Now let's look at Mark 13, 8. What does it say? For nation rise against nation, kingdoms against kingdom, there will be earthquakes in various places, there will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. We see that then is a picture, a symbol of what exactly what Jesus said would happen. And when we look at our history of what happened between the death of Christ and the destruction of Jerusalem, there was a great famine. Even the book of Acts talks about this great famine that took place. We keep going and we see it says, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider was named Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by a wild beast of the earth. Luke 21, 11. Luke's account of the Olivet Discourse. There will be earthquakes and in various places famines and what? Pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. We go to the fifth seal. Okay? The fifth seal says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar of the souls, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Mark's account of the Olivet Discourse, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And brother will deliver brother over to what? Death. And father his child, and children will rise against their parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated for all my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And so what's common here is basically there will be persecution. Now when we go to the sixth seal, this is a long one. Listen to what he says. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. 
And the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath is come and who can stand? Now listen to what Jesus says, okay? It says, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be fallen from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Sound like the same thing? And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of the earth, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. And then, he says in Luke 23, right as they were crucifying him and taking him to be crucified, it says, And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? So we begin to look and we begin to see the same things, the same phrases that Jesus Christ has said in Matthew 24, and when he said these things are going to happen to this generation, not that generation 2,000 years ago, John is saying those same things using those same phrases in the book of Revelation. So that's why I began to see and began to believe that Revelation is John's Olivet Discourse, and it was all for the first century application. And now, as I promised, I believe that the beast that is mentioned in Revelation depicts a first century application. So we're going to now reveal the beast. Okay? Who was it? Is it someone to come? And notice I said beast and I did not say antichrist. Do you know why? The antichrist is never mentioned in the book of Revelation not there never mentioned the antichrist was built by a system of belief that took Daniel chapter 9 and said that when this prince is going to come because they had placed a gap between the 69th week and the 70th week and a prince was going to come they determined that that was the antichrist and yet in that whole context Daniel is talking about the Messiah. Here's the crazy thing about that. Think about that, folks. Where Daniel is speaking about a Messiah in the fulfillment of the 70th week of his prophecy that he was going to come and he was going to be the Messiah, dispensationalists say it's the Antichrist. So therefore, they have now a system where they've built into an Antichrist that's going to be ruling and reigning 
Supposedly, his name is Nikolai Parvloff, according to Left Behind series. But they literally built that out of their presuppositions that he was going to be revealed in Revelation. And yet, Revelation never speaks about an antichrist. It speaks about a beast. And so, we're going to look at it, and let's look at it from a viewpoint of John sitting on the island of Patmos. Okay? It says, I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. Now, I want you to think about this. John is sitting on the island of Patmos, looks across the sea, which he can't. He looks across the sea, and what is rising up out of the sea? He looks over there, and he sees this nation that is across the way looking there, and we're giving clues to what this may be. Now, I want you to understand about Revelation. It talks about a land beast. It talks about a specific individual beast when it's there. But commentators, both liberal and conservative, agree that in Revelation, the beast shifts between the generic and a specific identity. The beast sometimes refers to a corporate entity, sometimes to a particular individual. So if John asks his readers to heed the prophecy for the time is near, then the beast must be a first century figure. Must be. So in Revelation 17, we're given a geographical location of the beast. It says in verse 17, I mean verse 7, it says, but the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carry her. Then you go to verse 9, and it says, This calls for the mind with wisdom. What is he saying? Guys, you can understand this. Use a little wisdom as he's writing to these churches. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman is seated. What city sits on seven hills? island of Patmos, he's looking across, looks like he's rising out of the sea, sitting on seven hills, is Rome, is Rome. So the entity, the corporate entity that John speaks about is Rome. Now, how does he describe this beast? He says, I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns, seven heads, ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw... Now we're moving back to this. Think about this. Ten horns, seven heads. Seven heads, basically, we'll see that, what that means in a minute. But he's seeing it rising up out of the sea, and now he switches to the individual. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Folks, what does the dragon do? The dragon is Satan. What has he come to do? To kill, to steal, and to what? Destroy. And this is what the beast actually did. The beast is given authority by Satan. Now, when we look at what it means about the horns and ten diadems, it emphasizes a great political power. Because in the, in the Old Testament, animal horns symbolizes political authority and military strength. You can find that in Numbers. You can find that in Deuteronomy. But he says this, it says, They worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who's like the beast? Who can fight against it? In other words, you have Rome and all its conquering armies. They had conquered nation upon nation upon nation. 
the Caesars of Rome demanded worship. When they were worshiping Caesar, they were actually worshiping Satan who gave them the power to do these things. And so what was happening was, is that here is this huge beast. Who is like it? Who can fight against it? They are too powerful. But what did the beast do? It was also allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. Now, who is this beast? It's given to us in the book of Revelation. Here it is. Here's the interpretive clue. Verse 10, Revelation 17, 10. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. If we're looking at a first century application, John is giving them wisdom. John is giving them an application. He says there's seven kings. Five have fallen. There were, at this time, I want you to think about this. There were five emperors of Rome that had fallen before this time. There was Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar, Tiberius Caesar, Gaius Caesar, and Claudius Caesar. Now, those are the kings, the emperors of this Rome, of this beast. It says they've already gone. They have died. They have fallen. And it says one is. One is. Who is this 6-1 presently reigning at the time of the persecution? It is Nero Caesar. He was reigning. Then after Caesar committed suicide, the seventh emperor was Galba, who reigned only six months, fulfilling what the scripture says. The other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. And now we're given something within the Bible that says this beast has a number. It has a number. Listen to what it says. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For the number is that of a man. And his number is 666. Now here's a problem that we occur when we're reading some of our modern day interpreters of the end times. They believe the number is going to be 666. And they've even said things like this, that that little bar graph that we have that, you know, we scan food for and those things, that if you look at that, the very first bar in its calculation is six. The middle bar calculation is six. The end bar, the calculation is six. So therefore, they are saying that a mark of the beast that is going to happen to us, that is going to happen on the hand and on the head of those who follow after the beast are going to have one of these marks and it's going to become under the skin. And it's going to be six, six, six. The Greek says that the number is 666. Not six, six, six. Because you think about it, folks, you've probably heard it. Ever since the 1830s, They've been putting numbers on individuals throughout history over the last 150 years. It was Mussolini. Then it was Hitler. Then it was Harry Truman. 
Then it was Ronald Wilson Reagan because he had six letters in each of his names. So it's six, six, six. Then it was Bill Clinton of all things. Bill Clinton. So he's the beast. He's the one that's going to get a head wound. He's going to come back to life. And this is going to happen. And so when you take these things out of context, folks, this is what kind of stuff that you get. So how do we know that Nero Caesar is the one we're talking about as being the individual that is the beast? Well, understand this. The book of Revelation is a very Hebraic book. John, being Jewish and writing concerning the judgment coming upon the Jews, wrote in a Hebraic form of Greek that's not anywhere else found in the New Testament. And so we have to understand that if we're looking into the first century, the alphabet served in two capacities there. They were used as alphabets, but they were used as numbering systems. And even archaeologists have found in Rome, as they use this numerical system, they have found something on a wall where they had numbers, the Roman numerals, then it says loves, and then it has numbers. What were they doing? They were saying, here's a signal, here's a a symbol, in other words, of a name, love, so it's kind of like you carving on a tree, you know? Andy loves Brenda, or something of this nature. But they put it in numerical statements. People knew that. They calculated things like that. So we need to understand that. So the first century spelling, Hebrew spelling of Nero's name is this. Remember he said this. He said, let him who has understanding... He's telling them, you can figure this out. Calculate the number of the beast. So Nero's name written in Hebrew is N-R-W-N-Q-S-R. Why is it written like that? Hebrew does not have vowels. It doesn't have vowels. They had little things that symbolize that they could put things in there, little stuff. One of the hardest things in seminary to figure out is, is that a little comma or is that a little jot or is that a little tittle? What is that underneath there? Then they'd have two dots and they'd have three dots. It's tough to figure out, but most of the time they knew exactly what it meant. And so his name was Neron Kaiser. Now I want you to look at this. Put a numerical value with that from the Hebrew The numerical value is this. N equals 50. R equals 200. W equals 6. N equals 50. Q equals 100. S equals 60. R equals 200. Total value, 666. They could figure that out. He said, here's wisdom. Understand these kind of things. And I know some of you are looking at, but what about that mark thing? What about that mark of the beast? Folks, if you go back and you read the Old Testament about the mark, it wasn't a literal mark. It was not. In other words, God told Moses to tell the people, take these words that I have given to them and wear them as a sign on your hand and on your forehead as a sign it's a metaphor 
as I sign. In other words, it declared allegiance. Take these words of mine and declare your allegiance to me. Hide them in your heart. Recite them. Use them. Train your children in the way they are to go. This is what that means. It's allegiance. You're giving your authority to another authority. You're following after them. And so when it says you're going to receive a mark of the beast, it's this. The Caesars controlled all worship. The Caesars controlled food supplies. The Caesars controlled everything. And if you wanted to eat and you wanted to buy within this kingdom, you're going to have to pledge allegiance to the Caesar. You're going to have to worship the Caesar. That's what you're going to have to do. Do those things and you will live. If you don't, it's not going to be good for you. And folks, understand this, that Nero Caesar reigned from 64 A.D. to 68 A.D. He was the first emperor to begin persecuting Christians. He did that. He, he persecuted Christians. He was the first one. And he was diabolical. He did war against the saints. If you remember, he blamed the Christians for the burning of Rome when he did it himself. And they came and they persecuted them like no one ever had persecuted them before. That's why they called it the Great Tribulation. Dear folks, if you have the opportunity to read about Caesar, please do. Read what he did. Let me give you how nutty and how crazy and how vile this man was that he literally would take some of his slaves, put them in the Colosseum. He would tie them to the stake and before people, he would dress up as a wild beast and go out and he would molest them in front of this whole crowd and then do terrible, cruel, vicious things to these people while they were still alive, until they died. This is beastly. In fact, one of the historians said there was not a beast like him. This is the beast. When you begin to read and you begin to understand some of these things, folks, understand that this is something that I believe that John is describing that it is, his, it is in his time and in his place. So when you're reading the book of Revelation, I can't go through everything because we're just about out of time. But understand, when you get over to the 20th, 21st, 22nd chapter, God replaces an old covenant system with a new covenant system, a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem. We are the new Jerusalem. He's going to create a new earth. When he comes back, when Jesus gives him the kingdom, when the last person that is called by his name and written in the Lamb's book of life is, is, is come to know him, he's going to then return. That's going to be the second coming. But read it from this perspective. I challenge you to do so and study it. And if you want something further to read, here's a good one. This is by Dr. Kenneth Gentry. It's called The Beast of Revelation. He goes through this in a historical account and how Josephus talks about the very things that we've been mentioning here and in very further detail, you will like this. And if you want another one, it's called Last Day's Madness by Dr. Gary DeMar. It's a great book and a description where he takes the current teaching, the modern teaching, the most prevalent teaching, and he begins to say, let's look at it through scriptural lens. 
and let's see if it meets the test. And it's a great book, and it will help you get started in the book of Revelation. Folks, I had a call from one of our members this week. He said, well, if these things have already passed, and yet we're still waiting for Jesus to come, where does that leave us? It's a great question. Where does it leave us? Doing the very thing Jesus told us to do. What is that? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always. That's very encouraging that we have Jesus Christ walking with us and then leading us as we share and as we disciple other people, bringing them into the kingdom of God. We don't have to sit around waiting that we're going to have some kind of chip put underneath our hand and in our forehead. We've got to get scanned. We don't have to worry about those kind of things. We can now say, let's go, let's build the kingdom. Let's do this. Let's get busy. And that's what it's all about. Folks, I do believe this point is this. I'm not pessimistic about our future. We have ups and downs and ups and downs throughout the course of history. Think about it. People thought back in 1860 the world was ending. Why? In 1860 in the United States, what was going on? Civil War. The war, you know, the world's going to end. Did you know before the Civil War, between 1858 and 1859, one of the greatest revivals happened in the United States that was led by a man by the name of Jeremy Lamphere? And it started with businessmen praying at noon. Hundreds of thousands of people were saved because of those things across the United States. And then the war happened. Do you think that wasn't in the plan of God? People came into the kingdom. People were taken out of this world during that war that are now in the kingdom of heaven. It's wonderful. God is growing his church. He is going to continue to grow his church. He is growing his church now. We think, and we think with blinders on and we think this world is going to hell in a handbasket. God is doing some great things across this world that you do not know about because we just don't think about it. I'm telling you, think about it. Think what's happening. Think about all the things that have happened since the death of Christ and where it's going. It's still continuing. God's going to continue building his church, building his kingdom, because his dominion, according to the scripture says, is from everlasting to everlasting. He's going to keep going, and it's going to be great. Why don't we just get in on it? Why don't we just share some of the blessings? That's where it leaves us, doing what Jesus told us to do when he went up into the sky and went up into the clouds away from the disciples. Go do those things. So that's what we do. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that, Lord, you would help us to see it in its fullness and its richness. Father, thank you that you have all things under your authority. We thank you we have all things under your sovereignty. We thank you that we have been given a task and help us, O oh Lord, through the strength of your spirit and by the word of God to go forth and proclaim the message of Jesus Christ to those that are outside of the kingdom. 
Help us to be the witnesses you desire for us to be proclaiming truth in a fallen world. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.